be here. Um, anyone here by any chance remember or know Father Dan Hanley? He's been St. James. Some people might know. Okay. So we would have fights in the car on the way to work because we um, worked at the chancery together, and he would be like, just don't understand masculine genius. And then he'd like run at my light. I'm like, you're right. I... <laughs> well, we got there faster. Um, but I am a Franciscan sister of the Eucharist, and there are, are lots of Franciscans, which is why you're having so many talks on them. It's, in fact, the joke, what's the one thing God doesn't know, how many different Franciscan orders there are. Um, and you know, I, people are always like, why are there so many different types of sisters? Like, you know, they're in blue and brown and black and white and pink and purple. No, there aren't. There. Actually, there are some pink nuns, but I don't know if they're purple. Silver, glitter. Actually, I often joke that I want to start my own order, the Rich Clares. And, <laughs> and we would serve Our Lady of Macy's. Um, <laughs> hey, the rich people need help, too. <laughs> and, um, but I often think it's a great analogy of the medical field. So we have doctors or nurses that specialize in different parts of the body. And um, basically, the Holy Spirit's arranged that there be different types of religious or priests who specialize in different parts of the body of Christ. So you have, whether it be the teachers, the nurses, or the social workers, or in our order, we do a variety of works. Um, our mission, though, is to um, be in the world and try to renew a sense of the sacred, uh, which is certainly um, very much needed. I often joke that I actually have a very stupid job. As the director of Respect Life, I go and tell human beings that human life is good and um, should be respected. And I would think we might catch on. But I don't want to make light of the fact that um, all the life decisions or morals and um, bioethics are very complicated decisions and very complicated issues and typically stem from our desire to not want to hurt others or not want others to be hurt or to, quite frankly, avoid difficult and suffering situations. And I often joke, um, which isn't actually a joke, I'm often honest in saying, um, not only am I afraid of suffering, I don't even like to be uncomfortable. So, you know, if, if I'm already not great there, imagine, you know, when we're asked to challenge and, and, and suffer even more. Um, so my talk tonight is on the genius of men and women, and um, I, I will do my disclaimers, and hopefully I'll say some throughout the rest of the talk. Um, I hope, first of all, to have fun with both the genius of men and women, um, and by genius, by the way, just to define that, um, it would be the particular or distinctive or identifying character or spirit, okay? So we're not talking about rocket scientists. We're talking about what makes men and women, what's our particular distinctive or identifying character or spirit. Um, or a personification or embodiment, especially, I'm sorry, especially of a quality or condition. So what I'd like to look at, and, and by the way, I, I stole all of this. So it's either from the Pope or from a scientist or, yeah, right. Oh, hecklers, this is great. Um, and I, um, in fact, one of the biggest chunks of my paper is from the podcast from The Art of Manliness. Um, um, do you guys, did you listen to the one on um, how men and women socialize differently? Did anyone listen to that? Good. I'm glad no one did. That's all one had. So, like, pretend you didn't. Um, but I, I spoke from there. And also just um, Vicki Thorne, a little bit from her. And then just things from different articles or my own life, um, which is rich with men and women who are geniuses. Um, the genius of men and women. I am the oldest of six children. I have a sister and then I have four brothers. And my brothers we call the puppies because they just were always wild and um, tackling each other like, in, you know, like puppies do. But recently my mom called because a neighbor called her very upset because her sons had a fist fight. 
she has four sons. And the mother was just traumatized by this. And my mom said, she said, did this ever happen with your boys? And my mom said, let me call Sister Claire. I don't remember between 1980 and 1995. She doesn't. She has no memory of it. So she goes, did the boys fight? I'm like, well, like, well when Jacob stabbed David with his <laughs> was that technically, like, because they weren't fist fighting. But yeah, they did. They definitely fist fought. And fist fought, 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 And so, yeah, but which, which is really, as we're going to get into it, part of the nature of a voice an event and um, and my sister and I certainly had our moments in our um, our aggressive ways of um, basically getting back at each other which included like ripping my Duran Duran poster that I really loved and um, also I would tell on her a lot which is very vicious girl behavior and um, we're gonna talk about that too but what I do want to say is I, I hope to tease a little bit about each of us male and female because I think we are in this wonderful world that we are created, first of all, by God in, in, in meant for relationship. Certainly with, our, with those of the same sex and certainly with those of opposite sex. And at times, it's wonderful and beautiful, and that can be friendship or romance um, or even familial, but also times it's, it, we don't, I don't think, take enough time to realize we're different. We're very different. And um, I think our culture is trying to tell us not only that there's no difference, but difference is bad. And sometimes actually we just automatically think difference is bad because I think we spend most of our life trying to fit in and not be different. Or we think being different will get more attention so we go that route. But I, I think that we are not comfortable with difference, which is why then we want to sort of negate it. And then I think what happens is when we're trying to relate to other people who are, who are different, especially if it's a male-female difference, um, we put a lot of um, our own expectations on how they should behave. So, for instance, I think as a woman, you know, we have defined what love means for us, and so a man should be doing those things to prove he loves us. As a man understands, this is how you show love. Um, you know, um, you know, they often talk about you know, a woman shows caring by helping someone out and getting involved in their problems. A man shows caring by staying away and letting the person figure it out. And I, I think we, you know, and it's for women, we're like, that's the meanest thing ever. <laughs> and for guys, they're like, that's weird. Why are you butting in? Get out of their life. That's just rude. Don't butt into people's problems, right? And like, well, that's what you did. That's what Jesus did. And so, <laughs> so we're more godly, okay? Um, and I might say some things that are controversial or hard to hear, okay? And I'm going to say them, um, and I want us to sort of live with it a little bit. So, for instance, the first thing I want to make sure we define is when we talk about um, where I got, for instance, the, 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 the title, Genius of Men and Women, I, I stole that from John Paul II and from his work in the theology of the body. And some of you may know that when he talks about the feminine genius, what he's talking about is a very deep mystery um, and that what the core of our genius is, and, and I, I know this, this is going to be interesting because I feel like I'm going to say this very shocking, controversial thing that everyone might, like, you might throw something at me. Um, <laughs> watch him. Um, and, and the same thing with men, and what's interesting is um, it's really very profound in the, our greatest gift, but I think in our culture, we've actually come to see these things as very terrible. So the genius of woman, of, of, of being feminine, is the capacity to receive and bring forth new life. It's motherhood. You all okay? 
But you know why I have to ask that? Because I think um, that's never the, the message from our culture. In fact, motherhood's a disease. Motherhood's a curse. Motherhood is optional. Motherhood is something people take medication to avoid. And it's certainly something that we do not promote in our culture. I actually, I, you know, have, have I, you know, just amazing to watch women I know who have more, more than huge families, like three kids. And, um, you know, <laughs> no, right? And people go, well, you're not going to have more, are you? And, and that's, a, that's a problem. Or, or uh, women who don't work. In our I don't work. I apologize. I'm really sorry. I just stay home with my kids. It's terrible. I know. I don't know what's wrong with me. I know they just got sucked in to the, you know, being with them. And, and, but we, we, in our culture, really, they're promoted as giving in or, or not being themselves. For, for men, um, in compliment, and in the idea of once we understand the feminine genius, then we have to say, well, then we understand that the gift of the masculine genius really being in the capacity for man to provide and protect new life, which is fatherhood. Okay? And um, again, we okay? Because we certainly have a culture where um, it's based on um, doing what the individual wants, not having to be tied down to caring for others. And I think, actually, quite frankly, if I'm blunt, in some ways, men aren't even allowed to provide and protect. You know, women say, no, 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 I got that. I'll take care of myself. We don't need you. Um, or, you know, the fears that come in with providing and protecting, um, that, that male fear of not maybe not being able to provide, not, not being good enough, not, um, you know, not having the respect to do that. And so then the fear and then abandoning that. But really, at the core, that's what we talk about when we talk about the, the masculine and feminine genius. Now, what I think is beautiful is that we certainly can go through a big theology on that. And I don't know, we'll see. We'll see how I feel and if you guys are still awake and we'll go into some of the theology. Um, but I actually think a lot of you know it in a way. And I, and, and I think also you're going to know a lot of the um, things. I'd like to talk about biology, rated PG, though. Yeah. <laughs> so I will do that. I'll be like, you know what I mean? Like, because I think we're, this is recording, right? <laughs> So, we'll see how that goes. Um, and then I'd like to talk about some of our social, natural incl inclinations that I think are really, actually kind of fascinating, but also really point to the fact that actually God didn't do a bad job at putting the genius of men and women and our natural inclinations together. The problem is we had a little bit of hiccup in the, in the process of what he put together and where we are now. Okay, so where we are now certainly is a fall. It was in is within a fallen nature, with a lot not only of temptations for our culture, but like an actual being, the evil one, who wants us to not believe in the goodness in which we were created, and that the things that were given to us physiologically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually are actually um, not good. And, and I think we know that, right? I mean, I think we know that our culture spends a lot of time um, convincing us that. You know, we, we're, we're the same, difference is bad, being mothers and fathers is, is not a good thing. In fact, you know, we, we want to um, look for ways to eliminate that process. Um, now, I've, I've said this before to some of your groups, um, maybe it's new, and maybe you've heard other people talk about There's a great um, uh, YouTube that's, I didn't get his name, actually, because I'm not used to stealing his stuff. But um, he talks about boxes. I'd like to talk about the difference between a men and a women's brain. What's the name? Mark Gunger. Mark Gunger, tale, right. Tale of two brains. It's excellent, okay. But I'm gonna use waffles, okay. <laughs> so men have waffle brains and women have spaghetti brains, okay. And actually, we could joke about it, um, and I will, 
But um, I think it's awesome that our brains are different. Now it's frustrating when I'm working, you know, over the chancer with, with the priest or with the lay people or with Brendan. Um, and, <laughs> and, but, but then after I get frustrated, I'm like, well, isn't that neat that they had that weird idea and that they had no clue how to do that normally? <laughs> but I do appreciate it after. As does he, when, as do they, when they go, you're insane. What you just did. In fact, my notes. Okay, so I, I was. A, a priest came into my office. He's like, "Can I see him?" I'm like, "No." <laughs> and, I, and he looked. He's like, "Okay, this is insanity." I'm like, "It works for me. It's my outline." Um, I was like, "I don't think that's an outline. I think that's just scribble." So, and then he laughed and was supportive. Okay. <laughs> Waffle brains, boss brains, and this is a gift because really, when we get down to it. If the essence of our genius is motherhood and fatherhood, then our goal is to survive, okay? <laughs> right? And to have civilization that survives after us. That's our goal. We're built for it. If you're confused about that, we'll talk afterwards. <laughs> but we're built for survival. We want to survive. That's why if like, that lamp started to fall, I would brace my, put my arm up to brace it, and you know, someone would come jumping up to save me, and it would be really very dramatic. But, um, and so for, for men, there's the gift and the capacity to have things in different parts of their, their brains, sort of sections, um, that don't mix. So there's the, there's the, the um, family box, the work box, uh, the friends box, the sports box, and then of course there's the, which I always thought was a lie, but the, the nothing box. Okay. And, um, that's a favorite box. Survival box. Okay, war box. I mean, all those different things. Um, food box. Um, and, and it's interesting because, first of all, I, I really, when I heard that, I was like, that's a lie. Right? And don't you believe that the guy is sitting there and you're like, what are you thinking about? And he's like, nothing. <laughs> And then, of course, because women have spaghetti brains, we thought of, in that one answer, nothing, 75,000 things that you were thinking about. But it's incomprehensible to us. And yet we know it is a gift for men to be able to keep things separated because, quite frankly, in order to protect and provide, you have to do very dangerous things. You have to sacrifice the potential of your life um, in order to focus on something that protects or provides food, uh, which could kill you, you know. So we, we're going back to you know the early days, if you will, the 1950s when you had to kill your food. BC. But but also I remember hearing something about um, the sense of after battle. Oftentimes the men would gather in groups and would sit around a, a fire, and part of that. Um, and, and just stare because I think the reality is if you're thinking about men being in battle or doing something, some huge physical exertion, I think it probably happens in sports sometimes, you're depleted. And quite frankly, biologically, um, that's something that is a, a huge component of, of your bodies is the need to rest. And so although maybe, and I talk about this again, but um, right, this is the PG part. Um, men always are always fertile, but they're not always necessarily capable all the time of making someone fertile. Okay, and so that there are times that a man needs to, to have rest and to restore himself. Whereas women are always receptive, but we're not always fertile. And we're going to talk about that. Someone to say something. Okay. You guys okay? 
All right. Okay, no, like, she just said fertile. <laughs> so we have men with the capacity to focus on certain areas, which quite frankly is a gift for these women. We actually, in fact, do love it. I mean, in a way, I think of that image of, the, of a flagpole. The flag doesn't do very well if there's not a stable point in our, you know, there in order to hold some focus. And then I think as women, we have the, the gift of being able to multitask and think about many things at the same time, which was necessary in order to watch the children and farming and gathering and being able to leave and um, care for and cook and, and, and for the survival of the children that we had to make sure lived. And also being attentive to them. Um, so while we were cooking, watching their, you know, their facial expressions or watching to make sure they weren't getting sick. Um, so that, that's another gift. Except though, I think now, you know, we, we do have to be very careful as women because, I, you know, again, when the man says nothing and, and then we go into our, um, I wonder if he's mad because last week when I talked to his mother and then I make that cake and I wonder if he liked that cake. Oh, I forgot to call my friend Susie and make those shoes. I wonder what I'm going to wear tomorrow. What time is it that I have to go to work? I can't remember. Not that show. That was so funny that time. Yeah. And that's, like, that was stalling, right? That wasn't even that fast or impressive. Okay, so we have the difference in our brains. And again, that's part of that is not only just the reality of being able to, to, to make, you know, protect and provide and make war, if you will, and, and feed, um, but also then as women, the capacity um, to be mother and to be able to absorb many things into us. Now, just a reminder of some of the, again, this, this, a little bit back to PG, our, our physical differences. Okay, we are physically different. different. Um, girls, definitely we can work out and we can be strong and, and we can be healthy, but there is a physical power difference between men and women. Um, there's also a difference in terms of, um, as I just mentioned, our, our, our anatomy. Okay, it's different. And I know it sounds funny you saying that, but I just want to make sure because, again, we're in a culture that wants to not give that um, any, any credence. And I think we also um, get to the point where we think that because it's not a big deal to be different, we can actually even sort of negate the difference and sort of like be one of the guys or the guy, you know, there's a difference in what we wear with each other or how we present our bodies or how we act with our bodies with each other. Um, but they are very different. In fact, they're so different, they, they do complement each other and we need to be very careful and almost see it as something, um, not just sacred, but something dangerous, quite frankly, that has to be valued and um, treated with the highest amount of respect because of the capacity and the gift to bring forth new human life. So we talk about, for instance, just a reminder, when we think about our sexual organs or the human body, um, many of our, our parts of our body, if you will, especially the sexual organs, only make sense if the opposite body exists. Okay? So we have organs, we have parts of our body that only exist for creating new human life. Okay? And if there's only a female body, then parts, there's things like, you know, that don't really work because it needs the other part, the, the male part, in order to allow the fullness of, of the body to work. Um, the male body, um, really the strength and the, and the power and the ability to, to protect and, and provide. And the female body, the capacity to feed, to nurture, um, and, and, and then to contain a new life within us, and then the ability to, to soothe that life. Um, we have also the joy of different hormones that affect those aspects of our bodies, and we love those. <laughs> um, but there's also a need, I think, I, I think a lot of times we, we, give, we use them as excuses 
or against something that's a medical problem. Um, and I think we need to start to look at those as part of the body. Our entire body is sacred and a gift. Um, and how do we give each other maybe a little bit of a, a deeper understanding because of what's going on maybe hormonally in our body. So clearly men with testosterone and the need um, of, of being um, cautious of how we dress, how we act in front of a man, knowing that that urge is very strong. And for women, we have the joy of our monthly cycle, which brings lots of hormones. And so I think as men, that's the most confusing time. And, um, but an, an ability to say, um, not, maybe not taking some things personally, and really kind of a respect for whatever emotion is going on and, and the need to sort of allow and just realize there's not much you can do to change it. And so you might just have to let that ride out. <laughs> I do want to say one more thing that um, I, some of you women about the body, and then we're going to move on, um, that I think is very important, um, which I swear not, nobody knows. I ask this all the time, and I always feel like I should yell at you all afterwards, like go back to biology 101. Just a reminder, as I said to you, um, the male body is always fertile, okay? Maybe not always capable of giving, but is always fertile. Theoretically, okay? I mean, clearly, medical conditions occur, but is capable of only being fertile. How, now you, some of you know the answer because I just yelled at you last week about it, um, but a female body is only fertile 24 hours a month. 24 hours. How long is that? One day, right? Okay. Because people think it's long, you know, I've heard like two weeks, you know, 10 days, whatever, 24, maybe two days um, if it's a real good egg and um, like real, a real champ. Um, but, so, so I just think you need to, to be aware of that. So like, for instance, so just the reality of um, women, again, always being capable of being receptive, but not always being fertile. And that there's such a gift then in that, in the chances of conceiving, which is typically the time we want to have, we want to be sexually intimate, because our body is screaming it's time to have a baby. That's, it, that's normal. So when we then take that away by taking like artificial birth control pills, and I think we know that, that the body is, is basically faking pregnancy. So when, when you're on the birth control pill, your body thinks it's pregnant, which actually then will change aspects of our, of our moods, um, of our sense of smell, our sense of taste, um, as with most pregnant women, things will change about our bodies. Um, in fact, there's a great study, if you are bored later tonight, you can go on um, online, it's called the, um, the T-shirt study, and um, it's out of the Netherlands. I, I love the Netherlands and Canada and those different places because they do these great studies that we won't do in America because they prove things are bad for you. Now, they'll keep using them. They're like, it'll show like the, the pill is really bad, but they're like, we're going to use it, but it's a great study. Because um, we're just not afraid of that. We're like, we're so afraid of our, of our drug um, companies. But, um, but it talks about the sense that the, the fact that a woman um, who's on artificial birth control pills will often, can, can actually, again, because she's, her body's duped into being pregnant, that she's pregnant, will choose someone who's more genetically similar to her than if she's not on artificial birth control pills. Which is, just, it's a fascinating study. Um, they don't have a study like that for men. But the t-shirt part is that they have men wearing t-shirts overnight, and then, believe it or not, they got women, women to volunteer. They put them in a Ziploc bag, and then the women smell the t-shirts, um, and that there's a sense of being attractive to the scent of the men. So it's very interesting. Now, so we just talked a little bit about the body differences. And, and again, we, look, we have to look at our bodies and say there's this reality of that, you know, 
men are built and, and have the capacity to protect and provide women to bring to receive and, and bear new life. Proving sort of again the, the genius. Now this I took from the podcast on uh, Art of Manliness. And it's uh, from a woman named Joyce um, Benison who wrote a book called Warriors and Worriers. Okay? So boys are warriors, girls are warriors. Which I thought was like, she should have gotten a, bit, a better name for us. I don't want to be a warrior. I want to be a warrior. However, I worry a lot. And I get like anxious about stuff a lot. And it's getting worse. And so I was like, yeah, it's true, we are. Um, but she's a um, human primatologist, is what she goes by. She's been doing this for 30 years, studying socialization of boys, of men and women, boys and girls. And she said there's actually nobody else who, out there that does this. So she works in collaboration with a man from Harvard who studies chimps, uh, chimpanzees. And he, um, his name is Richard uh, Rangum. And they work together and basically find that the two worlds aren't so dissimilar in terms of just the natural base way that male chimps and male, male, excuse me, male boys, male boy, male humans, boys, um, act, and then, and then girls. Now, I think this is very fascinating because it's all very natural. Now, look, someone in the room is going to say, no, I was a tomboy, that's not me. Someone in the room is going to say, no, I didn't do that, I didn't try to kill my brother. Um, and that's fine, okay, we're all different. It, it, this is just from studies, you know how that works, the science-y people. Um, and what I'd like to do is kind of is highlight a couple of them, but then I, I, I would like to just say where I, I think if we can just not take it so seriously, there's really a beautiful gift in there. And I might even throw in something spiritual, believe it or not, the nun, um, or theological that I think really um, can be shown that, uh, that, that, that even the spiritual is part of our natural inclination in that. Okay, so first of all, I thought this was very interesting. Um, she starts off, she studies... Um, infants and like, how do you study infants? That's one of the questions. And so apparently they do, they get they take six month olds and they show them videos. And in the study, um, boys preferred um, videos that showed groups and hitting motions. Okay. That's a shocker. I also I have um, ten nieces and nephews, and they might factor into some of these. Um, Examples too, just so you know. I'm at, um, and I know my brother and his wife. I encourage all this. So one of my brothers has three boys and a girl, and they went to this um, like Scottish yards type of games things, and they got the boys swords, um, wooden swords. What? Because that's what every four-year-old boy needs is a wooden sword. And so, be, so I, we're at the, my family's house, and I hear my brother go, Jacob, go, no, we don't chop, we slice. <laughs> And so I'm like, who says that to their kids? Don't give them a sword. You know, he's like, so I mean, that's something they're just like slicing each other's arms. They're learning to slice instead of chop off uh, to play. I'm like, that's just sick. You know, you're bad parents. Um, the girls prefer individual individuals and creative emotions. Okay. Now again, let's not get too tense about this, or, or like that's not fair. I want to, you know, I want to hit, um, but, but um, or the boys want to cradle. But um, I, I think we need to say this: this is an innate aspect of our of our beings. And it, again, it, it just goes. It's, it's fascinating because I don't think John Paul II heard that study. Um, yet he's really understanding that you know, in, the, in this this genius of providing, and protecting, and this genius of bringing forth new life, these are pretty critical elements to that. Okay. Um, it, it really, at the end of the day, okay, if you will, 
the early behavior, socializing behavior for boys. I'm just going to paraphrase it. I mean, I keep saying provide and protect, which sounds nice, but it's basically make war. Okay? Make war is the basic line of boys. You're, 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 that's like your goal as a two-year-old. Um, for girls, okay, it's based on survival. And not only just our survival, but the survival of others. So that's why you'll see little girls who will be, like, you ever watch that, or maybe, you know, who are just like, want to make sure, you know, that everyone's okay. Even, you know, when someone's hurt, they're like, oh, they're hurt. And the girls are really well obsessed about that, boo-boos and things like that, because they get the cool band-aids also. But, um, so for boys, there's, um, in fact, she argues that they're more social than girls, because boys will want to socialize in larger groups that basically has fighting and attacking it. And it's based on having an enemy. Okay, so little boys, and I, I think this is true, typically there's always the bad guys. Okay, you got bad guys, there's sharks, there's aliens, there's um, whatever it is, is the, is the idea of the bad guy, and the goal is to get rid of the bad guy. Okay, you're always fighting the bad guy. And I think that becomes in sports, it's the other teams, the enemy team, whatever it is. For girls, Okay, we um, will tend to be like not mind playing by ourselves or with or with adults especially, but we typically have just a few friends. And do you ever notice little girls do that? They'll be like, "You're my first friend, you're my second friend, and you're my third friend." You guys are like, "That's just weird." Um, but we do that. Okay, we rank our friends. And the worst part is we're like, "I'm her third friend. I'm her third best friend." And like we're okay with that because there's a sense of like that's a small number, right? Because you guys are playing with 15. And if you go to playgrounds, how many people hang out at playgrounds? Anybody? The teachers, anyway. The teachers are new. Um, but you'll watch, like, the little boys are, like, in a pack somewhere killing the snake or burning something. And the little girls, you know, are looking at the shoes or maybe running around, but there's usually just a smaller group. And they're doing something, and they might, and they're going to hang closer to the adults, whereas the boys are going to be hiding from the adults. Okay. Um, which I think is a beauty quite a bit. In, in a way, because I think, um, first of all, the sense of, of I'm going to use it, the band of brothers, um, I think in terms of um, certainly the ability to rely on each other, when we think about the beauty of not only um, in war, but um, how beautiful that could be just in terms of, I think some of you are in men's groups or, or prayer groups, just having men in your life that can really show and, and, and support you in keeping you accountable for a moral life and for a prayer life, and that that's very effective for all of you to have that group of men. Um, for women, we do like groups, but typically it's a best friend, or it's one person, or it's our moms, that are oftentimes going to be the person we go to for our counsel and our moral support. And um, we might be able to talk to a bigger group, but that's not going to console us, and it not in some ways it's not going to motivate us. Um, in fact, it might, in, or, um, for girls, actually, it's interesting, for women, um, uh, basically, at, at the end of the day, it becomes, we, we have our friends or close to those who will help us um, essentially raise children. So that could include your husband or a mother or mother-in-law, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But um, And then I think, you know, when we think about with um, boys meeting enemy, their enemies, um, I, I think there's something very beautiful in that, and just I think men do have a different sense of understanding the power of evil. And so, you know, I, I think in our social nature sometimes we can get, as women, can get caught in wanting to... to, to kind of be around every, you know, other people and, and, and help everyone. And I think sometimes we could miss things that are dangerous to us or, or people that are, or situations that are. And I think we do need good men, strong men in our life to help protect us from that and to help give us a, um, some guidance sometimes or just even um, 
physical way of protecting us from things that, that could happen. I think those are beautiful gifts, not a bad thing. Um, the, um, the other things I thought that were kind of interesting um, is, again, that boys also will have large groups of people they're not related to, that they're very beautifully dedicated to, and in fact, again, willing to die for. Okay. And that is, a, is a, an instinctual um, element to being men. For women, we will tend to, um, as I mentioned, to keep close to those who will help us to become maternal or will teach us how to do that and will help us care for the children. And again, this is a very practical, um, maybe sort of think of the more of our tribal days, um, but it would, there would be many generations that would be helping to raise children. Um, Many times grandmothers, not now, but you know, for most generations, most grandmothers lived in the home with a family to help care for the children. Um, this author says um, it's, it's nice for a woman to have a best friend who is her age, but at the end of the day, that best friend who also has children is not going to be very helpful because basically it just means more children um, and not someone to, to, to help the woman take care of her children. She's going to need someone who's single or doesn't have little children to help because then it's two against more. Um, two against more. <laughs> um, now, the, um, this is also, uh, she talks about competition between men and women. And this is very interesting, I never thought about this before. But men, again, geared towards battle, geared, to, um, geared towards war. Um, first of all, one of the things is they come together in a group, and again, I just never thought about this, and I guess men do this, you can say, I asked men, and they said they do this, but anyway. Um, there's often, a, it, it, your, your mind ends up being very hierarchically geared. So for instance, as a group of boys come together, you guys spend time, you're basically the fighting, the wrestling, the things, is to figure out who can do what. Who's the who can run the fastest, who can punch harder, who can hit a ball, you know, or sports. You basically, and you want them all on your team, okay? Because you want to be able to win. So for girls, that would be kind of threatening, you know, right? If, if she's prettier, she's taller, she's thinner, she's smart. That's competition, okay? Um, also, they did a study watching female um, athletes and male athletes, and they found that the, the male athletes, after they like almost killed each other boxing or whatever, like would hug afterwards and be like, okay, and, and go out and socialize together. And like, no hurt feelings. <laughs> Women could never do that. <laughs> it's very emotional. It's very personal. And, and I don't know, I mean, I'm not saying, I mean, if, if you're an Irish pub, you know, the Irish are famous for holding grudges. Um, but I do think if you probably talk to your male female friends, women will remember much longer when we were hurt, and a guy will be like, I don't remember that day. I don't know what happened. Um, no, but I'll take that back. I mean, some of you guys are like, oh, guys will be like, nope, I can hold a grudge forever, and that's great. Um, but how necessary was that, though, when you think about in war, um, needing to stop the fighting and come together and make treaties, make constitutions, maybe even in a couple years being allies with the group you were slaughtering earlier, and now you're on the same team. That, as women, would be very difficult to do. Um, another thing I think that's just sort of interesting, and this is more, I want to bring this up in terms of just our need to be, um, maybe this is a little bit of an examination of conscience version part of this part, of our part of aggression, that both men and women are aggressive. Um, for men, it's physical, um, but I think that um, that also can be manifested in anger or rage, and I think we need to be very careful, you know, you know, you know that, we need to be very careful with that, or the, or the physical aspects, especially in terms of the sexual sins. For women, we are also aggressive, 
um, but it's it's smoother, okay? What she says, and I, it's, I never, again, defined it this way, and she's right. She says, number one, the aggressive, our, women being aggressive, the object, number one, is to not, not to get caught. So we're aggressive in a way that we can be sneaky about, typically. And I'm going to tell you guys how it works in a minute. You're going to die. All right, number two, um, that basically there's going to be no capacity for retaliation because no one can get hurt. So this is how it goes down. Okay. Um, first of all, it is rarely physical. I mean, more and more now maybe it happens that way because I think we sort of lost some sense of just identity. But typically it's going to be, um, we might destroy things or take things from someone. So I think as girls, that's when we stole our sister's sweaters or we stole something from our family, you know, our parents, and you're stealing water. But we, or, or we, um, we ripped our sister's poster or we, we ripped her doll head off, things like that that we did. Um, and we, maybe we got in trouble with it, or if we didn't, we got to tell on them to because then they got to be in trouble. But oftentimes it's through gossip, through um, ruining someone's reputation. Um, and I think our, the biggest one is um, our subtle physical cues that we will do. Um, so that can be eye rolling. So I'm um, looking at, um, well, what's your name? Kelsey. Kelsey. And Brendan says something, and only you can see me. And I'm like, can you believe me saying that? But Brendan doesn't see that, and that lets Kelsey know he's an idiot. <laughs> We'll do it with um, sort of a body, you know, sort of a, a body gesture, and oftentimes we'll do it in front of the other person, and um, they, they either catch it or they don't. And I think we can we we're sort of geniuses with it, with with a verbal intonation or fluctuation of our voice. So we'll, we'll say something like, "Oh, you didn't finish college. Okay, great." And that means they're stupid, and we are making sure everyone knows it. But but it was smooth, and the person does, can't really retaliate unless they caught it. And sometimes we do, and some, but a lot of times we don't. So there's the sarcasm or the body thing. So I think we do have to realize that we have these natural inclinations, but we can't stay there. That we really are called to a deeper, higher level, and that we now have to learn how to manage and integrate and mature those natural inclinations, which are goods. They're good things. But now, how do we bring it to that higher level? Um, you know, um, Edith Stein talks about the the the, um, the character of the male body is as an instrument, okay? And that's actually a positive, okay? That's not it's not we're not talking in terms of making it a thing, um, because when we think about something being an instrument, say Francis actually wasn't he didn't write the prayer make me an instrument of your peace, but we talk about theologically the fact that we are all instruments, okay, our bodies are instruments of the Holy Spirit. Um, we think about the priest, how, I mean, in the idea even of, 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 of the male priesthood, the gift as the priest is his body's the instrument through which the Holy Spirit flows in order to give us the sacraments and, 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 and to, to celebrate Mass, and I think we, we've seen we don't get caught in it's just Father Planty or Father Dyer or Father Serby, it's actually um, the other instruments through which it works. And the woman has, she, Edishtein talks about, we have a deeper sense of the sacramentality of the body, the sacredness of the body. 
And John Paul II talks about the need for the complementarity in that because our bodies are, are actually speak a language. It is, if you will, an instrument that expresses something about who we are. And men understand that. And men, I think, have a real respect for the body okay, and an attraction to it. And as women, we understand that the spiritual aspect of it and that we have to have them together. And that, that the, the, the body um, speaks the language um, which really um, tells us it, it's alone is making visible what is invisible, okay? So when we talk about making visible what is invisible, what is invisible, we're talking about the spiritual, we're talking about God. Now, we know that that original creation story, I always do like a fourth grade version of it, maybe it's more like second grade. Remember the children's Bible stories? All right, just think of the pictures. That's what we're going to do real quick for the theology. This is theology of the body through children's Bible story. Picture. Okay. Um, so we have this creation account. And we know that God creates Adam. Um, and what does he say? So it right, creates everything, creates the stars, the sky, the gorgeous moon that we're not seeing tonight. Um, and he says it's good, right? He creates Adam and he, he says what? And then he says what? It's not good. It wasn't that he created Adam that was not good. What part was not good? He was alone. Okay. But come on, technically was he alone? No. What was there? Animals. In fact, he had a lot to do, right? He had two jobs. Just two. It's a short list. What were the two jobs? Take care of the garden. Take care of the garden and name the animals. Okay, so he's busy. And you just want to ask him, like, really? Hippopotamus? Where did you get that plot? You know, like, armadillo? Um, Anyway. Um, so he's with the animals, and actually it's kind of funny because I think in our culture now we love animals more than people, so we're all like, what's the problem? Like, he had a dog. What, like, why did he need that eat? You know, there's lots of jokes that go with that. But for the first time, we have this, this God, this all-powerful creative God, saying it is not good for man to be alone. And when it's inter- it, what's interesting is um, that... It's not just like he was bored and alone and no one was like them. God actually, with that word, is, is basically saying you know, it was not good um, that um, because it doesn't complete the essence of who Adam is. Okay? Um, so being alone doesn't just mean he's lonely. It actually means that there's, there's something within him that's missing. And that we all know. And that is what we, John Paul II calls the original solitude. Each one of us in this room, even if we're married or we're a sister or we love, we have the love of our life standing yesterday, there's a sense where they can't fulfill all that. And there's a sense where we do feel alone. And even if we have someone we love and, and, and they fulfill that for a while, but there's going to be times that we don't, we do feel alone because we know that we are created for other. Um, so, Adam then is put into a stupor and it is then asleep and it is then that God creates Eve. And I think this is a very beautiful moment that we don't maybe look at as, as, as much as I, I, I think we should, personally. Um, but first of all, when, so God creates Eve, and when, when he creates Eve, he brings Eve to Adam. Okay? And the word that's used for bring is the same word that's used when, for, for the, is the verb to bring when Moses brings the Israelites out of Egypt. What were they doing in Egypt? They were slaves. And actually, so it's not just like, here I brought you this, or here I'm going to bring you guys out. It actually is this very beautiful Hebrew word that really means to free, to be brought out of slavery. And Adam is basically freed from a slavery of self. 
And I think, you know, when we talked about the fun things about just sort of the boys in war, um, life can't be sustained from, by that. Okay, we, we, you, you know, you guys can be wrestling and battling and killing all you want, but is, if there's not another person to bring forth new life, it's gonna, the game's gonna be over fast. Okay, and so we've got to have. The, you see already, there's this there's this not just capacity, but this need for the for an other that's capable of complementing and bringing forth new life. So Eve is brought to Adam. And I love this. Adam says that at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And it's not just like, oh, thank God, it's like you're here and I'm not bored. It's actually a very different wording that again used in the Hebrew. And this at last really means, at last I can now be fully who I am created to be. Okay? Sort of like, you complete me. That that would be so old, right? Um, Jerry Maguire, you even you guys weren't even born when it came out. Okay. Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise, good job. Thank you. Okay. Um, and so now Adam and Eve can be who they are meant to be, and essentially what they're meant to be is gift to each other. Okay. So Adam is gifted with Eve, and that's the first experience humanity has. That's the first experience we each in this room hopefully had when we were born that we were a gift to the world and that we were treated as gift, and we were a gift to our parents. Um, and so we know that deep within our heart, John Paul II calls it the echo, that deep within us we know that memory of being gift. And that's why when they meet, there's this, this capacity um, to understand by seeing each other's bodies that they are created for unity, and that they are created for a nuptial relationship, to become one, and that they are created to bring forth new human life. Um, and that was a very beautiful, powerful moment. And that lasted for how long? I know, we don't really know, do we? Um, I know, sometimes I ask, like, how long was that? And people are like, ah, two days? And I'm like, that is a trick question. I don't know. Um, so we were created for this. And then in comes evil. And just a reminder of who Satan is. Who was he? He was a serpent, snake. So in what, what was, was he always a snake? Fallen angel. Okay, just I know this is kind of a hard room to do, like classroom style. I'll just answer it. Okay, um, he's, he was Lucifer. He was the greatest of God's creation. Okay, uh, in, in, in terms of the angelic, well, God's creation. He rejected God's plan. He did not want human life to be higher than than the angels. He did not want God to lower himself and come to earth. And so he rejected that. He, and he hated God and he hated human life. And so he came in and brilliantly slithers up to Adam and Eve. And um, I, I've asked many of this, so I'm going to answer it. So, but why Eve first? And little kids are great because they'll say something like, because moms are in charge. Adults will typically say, because women are more gullible. And actually, I think there's a little truth to that in some levels. Um, and then, so, so we, we know that he went to Eve first. Um, and I, I think when we have to, if we look at the theology and what we're talking about here in terms of the genius of woman, Really, if his hatred is in God, in God's creation, and human life, she's in a way the most threat, the, the, the bigger problem. She's the most threatening. He, and so he comes to her, and he knows that it's through a woman that he will, you know, eventually be crushed. Um, actually, that's an interesting just thing to remember. Jesus is not the counter-creation to Lucifer or to Satan. It's, it's the Blessed Mother. She is the most perfect creature um, created by God, the most purest so that she could destroy Lucifer. Um, um, but the, so we have evil one comes in and convinces Eve. And I think 
we can all understand this. I mean, basically, he gets her where she's most vulnerable. He talks to her for a while, probably, as you know, are having a conversation. Um, and he basically starts to, to say, well, did God really say he would die? And, and it doesn't sound so bad. I mean, are you sure? You know, maybe he wants you to eat of it. That to prove that you, you know, you, that you are, you know, you know, is power like like he is. You want to be like him. You want to be powerful. You can make your own decisions. And he and he tricks her. And I think you know, for a lot of us in this room, I don't know about you, but when I sin and when I make a bad decision, it seemed like a great idea at the time. And it sounded really good. It was a great plan. Um, I also think when you think about evil coming in to destroy, you know, and, and, and going to Eve first, again, when we think about the feminine genius of, of motherhood, um, how now as women we are convinced that, that, that our fertility is a disease, um, that our, our children it's optional to have them or not, um, that, we, um, that by having children we will lose ourselves, that we will be less than, that having children and raising them will not be fulfilling for us, and that our career is more important. And I, I, I think we, we buy that. And in a, in a lot of ways, it makes sense, right? I mean, it's logical, because that's what our world tells us, but it's not true. And a reminder of where Adam was when that conversation was going on. Adam was in the garden with Eve. It's in Scripture. So it says in Genesis, he was right there. And so we have a man who was given a, a mission by God to protect and provide and to care for the garden, and he, he blew it. And I think, again, that hits man at your, the core of your heart. It was failure. And it was an inability to, to be the one, to be the man, to be strong, and to be and to provide. And so he hits Adam right at the core. And so then there's the fear then of, of providing, protecting, and sometimes that creeps in, and then men abandon family, abandon wife, abandon children. I know my time's about up an hour ago. Um, so on a positive note, we have this fall in nature, but that's all, not all is lost, as we know. We certainly have the, the salvation um, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and then just a, a couple things I wanted to say to, to, to make us aware of um, how we can continue to grow in each of our personal geniuses as male and female. Um, first of all, I just a very concrete thing as a woman standing in front of you who will not have biological children, um, the genius... Definitely an aspect of it is the capacity to mother and father new human life, but that also can be done spiritually, that can be offered up. That might be for some people the cross that you're asked to bear because of infertility or difficulties or the inability to marry for some reasons, there's not finding the one. Um, but that nonetheless we all have the capacity and may find that on a spiritual level, okay, or in a, in a givenness and a sacrificial level that's very beautiful and very fruitful to God and, and to others. Um, I also want to increase, encourage us to study more about what it means to be um, truly male, truly, truly female. Part of that might just honestly be getting a science book and just making sure we know about our bodies. We really don't know a lot about our bodies and about the goods of the body, and about what's, what it's capable of, and, and of how it works. We need to find out more. Um, also, I think there's beautiful scriptural, uh, or spiritual, and well, scriptural, but uh, spiritual writers that do a lot of work on the body, certainly John Paul II, Eve Stein, um, who else does it? Uh, um, von Hilde, um, Dietrich von Hildebrand has some good things out. There's a lot of things. Uh, Christopher West, there's just things everywhere. You'll find it. Um, get help. 
Um, also, emotionally, psychologically, there are some very good, solid Catholic resources out there. Even things like it's not just male, female, but the temperaments, the the loves, the, the love languages. Those are those are good things to know. Guys, you're dying. You're like, not that book. Um, and then um, we also need to have, I think, an openness to really learning about each other and to enjoying each other. Um, again, I was talking about this talk with a with a priest before I came, and um, I mentioned the thing. I said the hierarchy. So do you really like? go into like a situation and rake the guys and he's like, oh yeah. You walk, when men walk into a room, you're typically figuring out who's who, who's what, and like where you fall in. Maybe not, you guys are like, I don't know, I never did that. But that's what he said, that there's oftentimes a ranking and you kind of figure it out and there's, it's, there's sort of a respect for that. You know, you kind of, or like in the, in the group of friends, you, you know, like the guy who sort of is the leader, the guy who's the jokester, and there's sort of a respect of everybody's role. So, and that, that wouldn't, like, I never walked into I mean, I walk in a room going, I'm the only nun here, but I'm not. <laughs> Sister Regina's with me tonight. Um, but how do we grow in that awareness and, and, and enjoy the differences, not get stressed or angry about them? And how do we start to celebrate them as a gift from God and not as um, something that um, keeps us away from each other but helps us to grow closer to each other and to God? Amen. Amen. Brandino says I can do five minutes of questions. Okay, yes. Oh, that one over here? Right, I'll get you after. All right. How did you realize you wanted to become a nun? Which were your, like, Oh, wow. You know that wasn't my talk. This is not a vocation talk. Because you know a lot about men. I know a lot about men. That's why I became a nun. The nun thing, um, I mean, this sounds bad. But that doesn't matter. No, um, so I was very fortunate to grow up with my order off the street. In fact, my parents lived down the street from the convent in Connecticut. Um, and I, I really grew up with a, just a, a good, strong Catholic family that encouraged vocations. And then, but that said, I certainly was very attracted to men and, and women. And I will say what I, what I, what I know now is also after study. Like I, I have a degree in theology of the body from John Paul II Institute. I mean, I, I have a degree in education. I, mean, I have degrees where I study these things also. And I, in life issues, I get to learn a lot about the science of, of our bodies. So those are kind of some of those things. But I will honestly say it has been such a gift for me now as a religious sister to see the gift of complementarity, um, the way as a sister I can participate in that in a spiritual level or you know, in terms of friendship or work relationships with men, but also then the gift that is um, for married couples. But it's been interesting because as I said to you, I had four brothers and a dad, um, and I you know, grew up, and then I joined con the convent in the middle of, of college, which is kind of where, at least my sort of um, ability to know, into, or I guess to live with men, maybe I should put it that way, stopped. I don't live with men anymore. Um, but, and then I taught high school, and then I worked in college. So there was always younger guys that I was sort of the mom for, the older sister for. And then when I came and worked in Arlington, I worked with a lot of men my age or older. And that has been very different, and it has awakened in me a very different part of my, of the gift of the feminine for me. And an ability to realize um, that, um, 
you know, it's great that men have an analytical mind and that they can actually have a sense of, and I'm going to use the word headship and authority that is of God and that I feel comfortable saying yes to and obeying. Um, a sense of not having to, to always be strong and perfect, that it's, it's okay to rely on others and to rely on men. So for me, it's just actually been a really great gift um, and has awakened to me actually a gift of the masculine and feminine. And as a young woman, quite frankly, my dad was, is wonderful, but also encouraged me and my sister to be very tough and, and kind of take care of yourself and no crying. And so for me, sometimes the feminine gifts of receptivity, of a gentleness, were, were negative. And so I've actually had to really learn to see those as beautiful gifts and not something that's weak and wimpy and less than, but as something that's a true gift from God. But it's been in the ability to work with men that that's helped me. Okay, um, yes, turn over. So you've talked about the family a lot. There's been studies, I, I read a lot of secular liberal sites, unfortunately, and um, when it comes to, they talk about how women who are CEOs of companies seem to you know, have certain skill sets because less aggressive, more nurturing, things like this. Mm -hmm. Have you looked into some of the uh, corporate aspects and CEOs, male, female? And you know, that's energy? interesting. I haven't, I, I just started cause getting ready for this talk, but I, and I do have some stuff. Um, this, that woman, Joyce Benison, does have some really good stuff out there, and she actually has an article called "Women Don't um, Professional Women Don't Cooperate Well," and it's very interesting. And I, I, I just read it, but I, I don't want to say a lot, nothing because I need to read it again. Because I, but it's very interesting because again, we talked about women are very nurturing, but she, in the studies, men cooperate with each other better than women. That women can tend to get more threatened. And now that again. That said, you'd be like, no, 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 I have a male boss, he's totally friend. he never works with us, my female boss is awesome, and she cooperates. But take a look at her stuff, she's very secular on venison, and hers is just science. Sorry. Yeah, quick question. Um, so I work in the pro-life movement. You do? Um, I like pro-life people. Uh, <laughs> as a man, I know my role is to protect life, protect woman and child. Um, but those who are pro-choice or pro-choicers, um, how do you, how does a man engage in conversation with someone who's pro-choice and kind of get the conversation going and change the way they think um, to the pro-life side? They actually, this is so fascinating. I just had a conversation today with a woman who has a 14-year-old son who is very pro-life and he was afraid to talk about it to this girl because she was so pro-abortion and he felt like he couldn't, he was scared. He didn't know how to talk to her and she basically said, you're a boy, you don't get pregnant, you know, you should shut up kind of thing, you know. Um, and, and, and I have to say, and, and by the way, this, I, I think we, we do get, um, we have to have a lot of respect, obviously, for everybody, well, for everybody. And then I think um, just aware of everybody is a wounded, and just how do we gently also talk to those who are in front of us. But my recommendation would be actually to make it very personal about, you know, to say something, well, like, so let's say it's a woman, or, and there are, let's just pretend it's you with a woman, and to say something along the lines of like, um, you know, I, I, I personally, I, like, I think, I wonder sometimes what would happen you know, if someone I love, if I, it was my child, and, and, and how I would want that woman to know how much I valued her and her life, and like almost talking about like, how would you handle a situation along those lines? Um, and, and, and sort of even, like even making comments like, I'm so glad you're alive. This is a good conversation. Let's talk more about this. Tell me more about yourself. You're really an interesting person. Like giving them a sense of the goodness that they are. And as a man, I just have to tell you, 
even the hardest of women, there is something about just that that initiating in love that really is very powerful. Even if we can't receive it right away, there's an aspect of going away going, why why was he so loving to me? Like that and, and again it could even be frightening at first, but there is something I think deep innate within all of us, but I think especially as a woman to have a man gently initiate with love and really support um, her existence and just in being. Um, but yeah, I think we have to get more creative too about how we talk about it and, and also taking time before we get to the big hot topic, like the relationship aspect, which is hard. That's, I mean, talked a lot about it. Um, yes, we're back there. Regarding religious, um, the secular marriage, a divorce rate is sort of, if they get married, is sort of a 50 to 60%. It's, it's less within um, a, a, a um, religious, and let's make that broad, religious. Um, well, first of all, I, I, mean, I think that actually there's just some really good studies out there that do show that when God is the center of a marriage, it does make a different impact than when there's a... a, a because, but and I, I think not only is this... It's not just God, but yeah, I mean, that sounds bad. I don't mean that, it's not just you. But, um, but I think what it gets down to is common core principles and, and belief system. And also, um, I, I would say... Um, uh, Fidelity to what would be essential to to a marriage, you know, fruit, um, faithful, fruitful, and permanent. Um, but I will say this: um, this is bad. I actually I say this with people who have kids in high school. I'm like, look, especially like Catholic couples who are really nervous. I'm like, it's a crapshoot. Um, because I think there's a, the, I think things we can never underestimate. First of all, the attack of evil and the temptations that come at us. I also think. Um, we are all so beautifully humanly wounded and, and are influenced by the culture. And I, I think we need to sometimes be more honest about that to ourselves, to be like, yeah, I bought the Disney movie. I mean, not even like, like literally, the, like I own Aladdin or something, but, um, <laughs> you know, but I, like the, the fairy tale. I buy into the fairy tale, I buy into the fantasy, I buy into this is what happiness is. I mean, that's just a great thing, I, even for myself to remember, um, why do I think something's a disaster because I'm not el like elated and happy and joyful all day? Like I'm struggling with something. And, and then we get into this like, that, uh, there's something wrong. That means I'm not happy. So I gotta do something because that's bad. That, and I think we, like, well, who gets to define happiness? That's my version of that. Or to, when it's difficult, you know, that doesn't mean it's bad. God was on the cross. That was a good thing and that was difficult. So I think we have to remember those things. I do think, though, couples, um, who want to keep God as a focus, um, don't buy into the secular lies as much. And also maybe don't get as caught on some of the levels of things that distract us from that. So, you know, whether that be sexuality, you know, I think 
it's so interesting to me because our bodies were created with such a sacredness to them and really honestly with the greatest capacity to bring forth new life and we've really made our, our, our especially our sexual organs um, toys for entertainment um, and whether that be with other people or because of pornography and, and then I just think it's so skewed that our, you know here this gift that we have that's given us the, the genius to be like God and again we treat it as entertainment pieces or something to fill in clothing and I think we need to really shift and I think I'm not gonna like don't raise your hand but I think a lot of us buy that line and I think we need to work on that and not get caught in, in, in those the, those stuff in those ideologies uh, alright probably the last one I'm sorry yes so I think like headship gets kind of almost overplayed for men because I, just having known women the most feminine ones, like the ones that kind of come across as submissive or, um, I don't know how to put this, this so in, in a very... I know, I'm like, <laughs> 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 you just said that word, I know, go ahead. I, I, will, I really want to, like, hide for a minute. But, yeah, okay. Um, He's okay. He's okay. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah. But, I know. Well, I really, my question is, like, the, the ones who are, like, very feminine are incredibly influential. Like, if you go to, the, like, the salons in France, like, prior, like around the revolution, you have oh. like, these incredibly influential women by virtue of their under their ability to relate to men in this very powerfully feminine way, mm-hmm. can you uh, can you expand on that? Because no, no, you can't. Don't lie to me. <laughs> because I don't think it's fair to say like men just like run everything and get made all decisions because we're the head. Okay. No. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's a whole. Okay. Look. Clearly, I'm not saying like frilly girly girls and men should go beat everything up. Okay. Like, I don't want. Like, please no. I mean, I hope you're understanding. I really mean this very. Like logical, realistic understanding of of being feminine and of being masculine, and I I do think when we use words like headship and submissive, that's Ephesians five, and I will just I know I'm already too long, but let's just be very clear about that passage, um, because that's where headship and that, that notion comes in, and I think we have to get really serious about this. So it's it's Ephesians five, and it's um um what yeah um. Okay, husbands and wives love love each other. Um, Husbands love your wives. Wives love your husbands. Husbands love your wives. Wives be submissive to your husbands. Um, And then he said, I'm sorry, I cleared on my Bible with me, and I'm not a Protestant, so I don't know my heart. Right? I'm Catholic, 12 years of education. Wives be submissive to your husbands. Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Okay. And I know I think it's one of their love as you love your own body. Now, again, even like sort of um, def, um, Hebrew translation aside, we or Aramaic, but we need to get into the reality of you know husbands love your wife be submissive submissio within the mission of your husband. What's his mission? To, to what? Well, well, that, okay, yes, the mission is to lead you closer to Christ, but by the way, first of all, it starts off with husbands and wives love each other. Okay, It's, it's, it's mutual, it's complementary, it's together. Then he's going to explain a little bit more of what are we talking about here, what does it mean to love each other. Okay, So we're talking about wives, husbands being within the role of Christ in Christ's crucifixion on the cross. Okay, It wasn't the part about... Be, you know, husbands be like Jesus when he multiplied bread. Be like Jesus when he walked on water. Be like Jesus when he healed everybody. It's not those nice ones. It's when he is totally tortured and in every way defiled and crucified and killed innocently on a cross. For one purpose. 
to save our souls. To save our souls. That's it. It's it. And so, not to, not to get lots of followers, not to be powerful, not to have a lot of money, to save souls. And so when you talk about headship, that's what we're talking about. And so we're talking about women being within the mission, the submissiveness of, of to the husband. It's basically this radical wife, you know, the gift of a wife saying, I give my life into your hands, okay, which, you know, I commend my, you know, my life into your hands because I know that you are willing to be crucified to save our family, to save my soul and your soul. And I think that's something that's very powerful. And so when we get into that notion, now how does that get played out in terms of the masculine and feminine dynamic? Gets out played out through a lot of hard, hard work and a lot of commitment and a lot of prayer. And it gets it's it's hard and it's messy and it's beautiful and it's loving, but it's lifelong until death. So on that happy note.